Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, same-sex marriage, right. He the state's last abortion provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. the Bible has application for every part of our lives. He said it would violate views as a Southern Baptist. He's on camera saying that Bill In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, welcome to The Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and I'm so glad you've joined me for this next hour when we'll be discussing an extremely important issue, the issue of abortion. Specifically, we'll be exploring how Bible-believing Christians should think about this issue and how is it that even some Christians are supporting new radical pro-choice laws like the one just passed here in Illinois. That law made abortion a fundamental right and repealed the ban on partial birth abortion. It also eliminated spousal consent, waiting periods, and criminal penalties for abortion providers. And it established that a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus does not have independent rights under the law. So what do Christians think of this Illinois pro-abortion law? Or how about the one that was passed earlier this year in New York? Well, there aren't any polls on that, but there are polls on how Christians think about abortion in general. In fact, the Pew Research Center... It found that 67% of white mainline Protestants believe abortion should be legal in all cases. About 51% of Catholics believe that abortion should be legal. But there is one group that's staunchly opposed to abortion, and that's white evangelical Protestants. And I don't know why Pew assumes that all evangelicals are white, because many aren't. And on this issue... I don't think there'd be a lot of disagreement between white and non-white evangelicals. But among white evangelicals, Pew found that only 34% believe that abortion should be legal, and the vast majority think it should be illegal in most or all cases. Yet if you go to the streets and just talk to people you find, you'll actually get a wide variety uh, of opinions on whether abortion should be legal or in what situations it should be illegal, or is the fetus human? I believe that at conception, the baby is a baby. I don't believe the fetuses are human at conception. I just think there are better social reasons to have an option. Uh, If it has a heartbeat, it's a human. I mean, assuming it's not like an animal. I am so, so, so pro-choice. I can't sit here and say that I believe they are. I do believe they are. I mean, I think it's like after a few weeks, maybe a month, they have a heartbeat. So, I mean... Yes, in the sense that they are developing, but no in the sense that they don't have, like, thought. Yes, because it's the beginning stages of human life. I mean, it depends on how far it is in the process. Like, if it's just a couple cells, it's not a human quite yet. So what do you think? Is a fetus human? If not, when does it become human? Or as one of my guests will argue today, is that the wrong question? Maybe it's human, But what's in question is whether or not it's a person with basic human rights. I'd love to hear what you think. The number to call is 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Well, joining me today are two guests on opposite sides of this issue. First is Father Frank Pavone. Father Pavone is one of the most prominent pro-life leaders in the world. He's the National Director of Priests for Life. He's also the President of the National Pro-Life Religious Council and the National Pastoral Director of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign and of Rachel's Vineyard, the world's largest ministry of healing after abortion. So, Father Pavone, welcome. It's truly uh, an honor to have you with us. 
Well, hi, Julie. Yes, thank you. Good to have you. Good to be with you. Yeah, well, I'm so glad we could connect. And also joining me today is Livy Burke. Uh, Livy is a Christian freelance writer and blogger who has written for a variety of publications. These include Rewire, The Tempest, and Bustle. But most pertinent to our discussion today, Livy is pro-choice and about a year ago wrote an article entitled Pro-Choice and Christian, How I Unlearned What My Church Taught Me. Livy, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, and I should mention that later on in the show, I'll be playing excerpts from my interview this week with apologist Nancy Piercy on this topic. Um, she has some really interesting things to say about something called personhood theory. I'm going to table, table that for now, uh, but that's coming up, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. But Livy, let me start with you, because as I understand it, you grew up in a conservative Christian home. Is that right? Uh, I definitely grew up in a Christian home. Okay. And you, when you grew up in that home, you believed uh, up until college that abortion was murder and was wrong. Is that right? I would say that it was definitely something I grew up being told to me. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I'd say when you're a child, whether or not you're old enough to independently believe it is a whole other discussion, but it was definitely something that was always taught to me, even when I went to Christian school. Um, they would always tell us that it's wrong, that it's against the Bible, you know, the basic things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you didn't, you kind of accepted it just because people told it to you, but maybe hadn't owned it completely. But when you went to college, something changed. So if you could help us understand what changed your mind. Yeah, so I guess being more to different walks of life and beliefs sort of helped open my mind to the other side. I had never really even thought about the other perspective. Um, and then once I sort of did my own research, um, going to like the internet, different like YouTubers, bloggers, um, like I said in my article, that was really what sort of changed my perspective. Hmm. And was there anything in particular, like um, was it the medical science, that kind of argument? Was it more just from a social argument of women need this option? What was it exactly? I would say it's a little both. I would say the medical aspect, yes, but definitely the sort of need for the procedure as well. Um, If you look in our nation's history, you can see there's very negative implications for not giving women not just women, but also members of the LGBT community, access to abortions. Um, prior to Roe v. Wade, an estimate of 250 to 8,000 women died per year of illegal abortions. And what's the number um, now of people dying from illegal, or just from doing backstreet abortions, that sort of thing? Do we know? Um, I don't know off the top of my head the number now. I know worldwide it's... Um, it's about 20 million unsafe abortions worldwide, and in countries like El Salvador that have extreme restrictions on abortion, there's like very high statistics of women either having like serious injuries and deaths due to um, unsafe abortions. Okay, so it, it's kind of a compassion argument then. You feel like when abortion isn't available, then women are dying because they're having unsafe abortions. Yeah, okay. I guess you could say that. Okay. Well, Father Pavone, I'm, I'm sure that's something that you've heard from a lot of people over the years. Um, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? 
Well, first of all, the uh, opinions vary on abortion, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I find very often that the discussion skips over what really should be the first question, which is what is an abortion? We can look at anything in terms of the impact it has on the people who do it. But, you know, let's start with, with, with looking at what it is. And, and that goes beyond the question of opinion, because, you know, we don't have to look at the Bible, the church, or or pro-life or pro-choice uh, uh, writings or anything. We have to just look at what the doctors say. The abortionists describe the procedure. Now, it's it's hard to listen to, but, you know, for example, um, Dr. Uh, one of the abortionists, um, Dr. Giles uh, from uh, Wisconsin, was asked, uh, can the heart of a fetus or embryo be beating during a suction abortion as the fetus or embryo comes down the cannula? And he answered, for a few seconds to a minute, yes. Now, this is a first trimester abortion. We're talking about a beating heart. And then, of course, as we go through the pregnancy, we read uh, words from, for example, Martin Haskell, uh, we would attack the lower part of the lower extremity first, remove, you know, possibly a foot, then the lower leg at the knee, and finally we get to the hip, and then the skull is brought out in fragments rather than as a unified piece. And I, and I read these quotes simply because in all the discussions about abortion, whether it's one-on-one with with a friend, or whether it's in the legislatures, or whether it's in the U.S. Supreme Court, what often gets skipped is this number one question, although the Supreme Court has looked at this and, and has used some of these quotes. But the question is, well, what, are we, what are we doing in the first place? And, and that's where the discussion has to start. And I think once it starts there, many people realize, okay, this is not... Um, this is we can't ignore what what's happening. There's another there's another human being involved here. So it seems like both sides are arguing from a compassion. I mean, but one's talking about compassion toward this unborn child, um, or is it is it a human? Is it a person? I mean, I think that's a big part of the question. So we're going to need to table our discussion for a minute and go to break. Again, uh, my name is Julie Royce, and joining me today is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, and and Livy Burke, a Christian pro-choice advocate. And I'd love to hear from you. The number to call, 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. We'll be right back. And when we come back, Nancy Piercy will join us. listening to The Royce Report with your host, Julie Royce. Well, why is it that even some Christians are supporting new pro-abortion laws? Welcome back to The Royce Report. I'm Julie Royce, and so glad you've joined us for this important discussion about abortion and how people of faith should think and believe about abortion. The number to call if you'd like to weigh in on our discussion is 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ReachJulieRoyce, and Roy's is spelled R-O-Y-S. You can also chime in on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash JulieRoyce. Well, joining me this morning are Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, and Livy Burke, a Christian writer and pro-choice advocate. But before I return to my discussion with Livy and Father Pavone, I want to play an excerpt from an interview I did earlier this week with Nancy Piercy. Nancy is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's also a brilliant apologist 
whom The Economist called America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She recently released a book called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And I've been reading this book with my daughter, and she said just this week how much this book has built her faith. It's been uh, really a remarkable experience so far, I think, kind of opening her eyes to the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of issues in our culture. But in this book, uh, Nancy has a chapter on abortion. And what I found especially revealing was what she had to say about personhood theory. This is an academic term that's been coined by leading bioethicists to morally justify abortion. Because you see, almost all the bioethicists, in fact, not almost all, all the bioethicists believe now that life begins at conception, but not just life, but human life. And though a lot of pro-choice advocates may not use this term personhood theory, it's what they're espousing. And this is the intellectual or academic basis, again, for this pro-life movement. So take a listen. What bioethicists say is that the fetus is human from conception. And then you say, okay, fine, but then how do secular bioethicists get around that then in order to say, in their view, abortion is still morally acceptable? Well, the way they get around it is by saying it's human, but it's not a person yet. And what they mean by that is it is biologically human, physiologically, genetically, chromosomally, mm-hmm. it is human. But they say being human is not enough to qualify for moral status or for legal rights. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person. And that's usually defined in terms of some kind of mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. But notice what the implication is. What they're saying is being human is not enough to qualify for, for legal protection, for human rights. As long as the fetus is merely biologically human, it is seen as just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. Hmm can be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for body parts and sold to research institutes as Planned Parenthood does. And then the remains are just tossed out with the other medical waste. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And this is actually called personhood theory. Of course, it's very dangerous because if rights do not depend simply and solely on being human, then the rest of us are at risk as well because any form of human life could be said to be not fully a person Mm. and therefore not qualifying for legal protection. It's interesting that you make this distinction because I've been pro-life for a long time, been active in the pro-life movement for a long time. And it used to be that the whole argument was focused on it's not just a blob of, of cells. It's not just a blob of tissue, the fetus. It's it's actually human. And that's what we were arguing for the longest time. And what you're saying is well, we've moved beyond that, right? I mean, this is now a whole new level that, that we can somehow say, oh, yeah, it's a human being, but it's not a person. Yeah, basically... The pro-abortion side lost the, lost the debate yeah. on the scientific level. They lost the debate. They have to acknowledge that scientifically the fetus is human. And so they've come up with this new strategy that says, well, but it's not a person. The only trouble is, how do you define personhood? If it's not related to being biologically human, then what is it based on? Well, it turns out that every bioethicist out there 
ends up defining it differently. This is so bizarre to me that we can say it's fully human and know it's fully human. It's even uh, viable outside of the womb. But yet, if it's in that birth canal, even it has no rights. It doesn't have personhood. Somehow when it comes out of that birth canal, it becomes a person, right? Not necessarily. <laughs> you know, then infanticide becomes an issue because bioethicists begin to realize, and Peter Singer, who is a bioethicist at Princeton University, says, why should coming out of the birth canal make a difference in your legal status? And so he has argued for infanticide, right. for the right to, you know, even after you're born, you're not yet a person. On his website, he even says three years of age is a gray area. Because how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? And so we're in the realm now where even infanticide is being seriously seriously discussed by bioethicists because they recognize what you just said. If the fetus is not a person, then the newborn infant also has all the same status as a late-term fetus. Namely, it still has a low level of cognitive functioning compared to an adult. So when do you decide? Where do you draw the line? That's the scary thing today is that the line is arbitrary and therefore it can be drawn anywhere. Well, again, that's Nancy Piercy, author of Love Thy Body. And by the way, I'm giving away free copies of Nancy's book this morning. If you'd like to enter to win Love Thy Body, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash love thy body. That's julieroys dot com slash love thy body. Okay, Livy, um, you're hearing this for the first time, uh, what Nancy just said, but presumably you've heard this argument or maybe even made this argument before that the fetus is not a person. What do you respond to what Nancy just said, that this is kind of a, a slippery slope and it's a little bit scary if we're not going to say a human, clearly the baby's a human inside the womb, if we're not going to say that that has rights and as a person, how do you respond to that? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a slippery slope. I mean, obviously, um, an unborn fetus is not the same thing as a three-year-old, even though a three-year-old doesn't have um, a whole lot of cognitive development as a human, as much as like a full-grown adult. Um, I would say that a fetus is obviously not the same thing as a person-person. It's a non-person since it hasn't fully developed, if that makes any sense. Okay, so the line that you're making is that it hasn't fully developed. So so unless it's fully developed, it's not a person, correct? Um, we're going to go with yes. Um, oh. Obviously, there are some gray areas there when it comes to like late-term abortions, but as far as because um, those are fully developed. I mean, after 20 weeks, if I'm understanding correctly, and Father Pavone, tell me if I'm wrong, at 20 weeks, 21, 22, babies can be born. They can survive. Even, even I mean, What's the earliest? Maybe even 19. Is that right? There have been, uh, there have been yes, 19, 20, 21. Uh, there have been, these are early ones, of course, that survive. Uh, and then, of course, certainly after that. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, is a difficult situation then. Um, Livy, would you say at 19, 20 weeks, then you, you can't take the life of that unborn child because it is fully developed? I mean, late-term abortions are very rare. They're typically, they're usually done for, like, medically necessary reasons, but not just out of casualty. Okay, so you're saying 
So you don't like the idea, but you're saying if it's medically necessary, if it's the life of the mother or the life of the child. Um, I would say yes. Okay. Father Pavone, what do you think of that? Well, well, first of all, you know, when we say rare, you know, if you look at the statistics from the Allen Guttmacher Institute, you know, they're talking about uh, 1% or 1.2% of the abortions being done after 21 weeks or more. But that's 1.2% of a million. Mm. So when we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, over 10,000 babies a year being aborted after 21 weeks, um, this is, this is, uh, I mean, and, and then of course, even if we were just talking about one baby, I, I mean, the question is, and of course, as far as medical necessity, first of all, there's no medical reason to kill the child. Obviously there are medical reasons to dev- to, to deliver the child early. And you do that to, by helping both the mother and the child, but abortions are done at those late stages for completely non-medical reasons. That's okay. The phone call that We're going to have to pause that thought because we have to go to break. But when we come back, I want to talk more about those late-term abortions. Again, this is Julie Royce. You're listening to The Royce Report. We will be right back after a short break. We now return to The Royce Report. Here's your host, Julie Royce. Well, welcome back to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're exploring the issue of abortion and how Christians should think about abortion. Here in Illinois, we've passed one of the most extreme, if not the most extreme, abortion law in the, na- in the nation. The law passed just about two weeks ago made abortion a fundamental right, and it repealed the ban on partial birth abortion. It also eliminated spousal consent, waiting periods, and criminal penalties for abortion providers, and... This is what's really interesting, I think. It established that a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus does not have independent rights under the law. In other words, it is not a person with rights. It may be human. It may even be fully viable outside of the womb, but it has zero independent rights under the law. What do you think of that? The number to call, 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Also, I want to remind you that I'm giving away a free book today by apologist Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. This book is a phenomenal resource and explains in detail something called personhood theory, which you heard about last segment, uh, which is essential to understanding the abortion debate. If you'd like to enter to win this book, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash love thy body. That's julieroys dot com slash love thy body. Well, joining me today is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priest for Life, and Livy Burke, a uh, Christian pro-choice advocate. And Father Pavone, before the break, uh, Livy had made the point um, that late-term abortions, when this unborn baby is fully viable, fully developed, um, are very rare and sometimes medically necessary. You said, mm, there's no reason to kill a late-term baby uh, at that point. You, you just deliver it early, right? I mean, would there be a reason to, to actually kill the baby? Well, we have had uh, multiple, and we work all the time with multiple uh, maternal fetal medicine doctors. We've had a lot of them on our program. And they, and even if you go back to Surgeon General C. Everett Coop in the 80s, he said, I've never seen a reason why you have to kill the baby. Certainly there's medically complicated pregnancies. You, you have two patients. You have the baby and the mother. You try to your best to, to 
help them both. Uh, so no, there's no there's no medical reason that any of these doctors have identified that you actually have to kill the child. But what we have to understand too is the non-medical abortions that are going on. We have, for example, if you look at um, exposeabortion.net. Uh, as I think you know, Julie, we did phone calls into abortion facilities to mm-hmm. where the caller said, I'm 32 weeks pregnant, 32 weeks. Mm-hmm. The baby's completely healthy. Yeah. I'm completely healthy. I just, don't, I just can't have this baby right now. I don't want to have this baby. And they scheduled an abortion for her. Mm. So, uh, you know, we look at the law. I mean, this, this new Illinois law, it doesn't say do late-term abortions only if there's a medical necessity. It says just the opposite. It says abortion is a fundamental right. You don't need a ne- medical necessity to exercise a fundamental right. Well, I want to push back on something you said, Livy. Um, the Congressional Research Service, it, it published a report in April 2018, and it found that, quote, abortions for fetal anomaly make up a small minority of late ter- later abortion and that those for life endangerment are even harder to characterize. Another study in 2013 found that women who got late-term abortions were, quote, raising children alone, were depressed or using illicit substances, were in conflict with a male partner or experiencing domestic violence, had trouble deciding about the abortion and then had access problems, or were young and experiencing their first pregnancy. So, I mean definitely crisis situations for these young women. And I think we should have compassion on these women and want to help them in these situations, no doubt. But this idea that they're having them because they're medically necessary. Do you have some information or some study that I'm missing? I mean, I find it hard to believe that there's all these women that are having these late term abortions just because they feel like it. Um, well, Maybe it's not saying because they feel like it. It's saying they're in they're in extreme situations sometimes. I mean, if if you're using illicit substances or raising mm-hmm. children alone, or you have domestic violence with your male partner, I mean, those are scary situations. I mean, I, I'm not going to say they're just doing it willy nilly, but yeah. but it's not medically necessary. Hmm. I mean, obviously, we should try to have. I'm sorry, what exactly are you asking specifically? Okay, because you made the point, and I've heard this a lot from pro-choice advocates, that these late-term abortions are medically necessary or they're necessary to save a woman's life. And so I decided to, because I looked it up, and actually I got what I got from the Congressional Research Service. I got that from the Washington Post. So that's not a conservative uh, newspaper. Um, In fact, I think a lot would say that sort of leans left. But what they're saying is, that's not really what the studies show. They're showing that people have them because they, you know, they just waited too long for whatever reason and they're in a crisis situation, but not because it's medically necessary. So I guess I'm wondering if you have something to back that up that maybe a study or something that I'm not aware of. I mean, how, like, how large of a, would this be like the majority or just um, out of this? number. Well, what it's saying is that that in these studies, when they studied women who had late-term abortions, it was very hard to find ones that were done for fetal anomalies, what they called it, or uh, life endangerment for the mother, that there's actually really hard to find, and that most often it's because these women are raising the children alone, depressed, or on illegal drugs, things like that. So I, I'm, I guess I'm pushing back and saying that's an interesting talking point of pro-choice activists, mm-hmm. but that's not what, that's not what the, the studies support. 
That is interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, I definitely, okay. Do you have anything to push back or is that kind of news to you? I guess I would say it's new to me. I wouldn't, I find it kind of surprising, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Um, I I think we hear a lot of things from pro-choice and Father Pavone, let me throw this to you. Uh, what about this idea of the the fetus not being a person? We 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 dealt with it in later term abortions. Yeah. You know, I mean, clearly, I mean, can, how can we say yeah. it's not a person? But and I think Livy, you had you had mentioned this when uh, in one of your articles that a lot of them are in the, in fact, most of them are in the first trimester. So what do we do with that, mm-hmm. Father Provost? Yes. You mind well, you know, the, the... Father Provost, if you can answer that, yeah. Oh, okay. You know, uh, if you were before a judge for having killed somebody, uh, it would not be a, a helpful argument in court to say, well, Your Honor, you know, I didn't believe that he had a soul. You know, or according to my philosophy of personhood, you know, my victim was not a person, therefore, can I go free now? Uh, I mean, we, we have obviously different religious beliefs and different th- philosophical positions on personhood. That should not matter when it comes to the law. The law does not protect you or my life because we require people to believe anything religiously or philosophically. It protects us despite what people might believe about us religiously or philosophically. They can believe what they want, but they can't kill us because of it. Hmm. Well, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. Joining me today is Livy Burke, a pro-choice advocate, and Father Frank Pavone, a national director of Priests for Life. Uh, I would love to have you join the discussion as well, 312-660-2594. We'll be right back after a short break. Former U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy is coming to the Chicago area this October for a special conversation at Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum. Learn how Kennedy, a diplomat and author and the eldest child of President John F. Kennedy, carries on her father's legacy of public service at this unique opportunity for the Chicagoland community. Get your tickets today for this lively conversation hosted by nationally syndicated radio host and commentator Eric Metaxas. The World Leaders Forum brings recognized world leaders to the region each year to inspire leadership for all who attend. Many great thinkers and leaders have keynoted this prominent event. You won't want to miss Caroline Kennedy this fall. Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum is October 8th, 7 p.m. at the Renaissance Schomburg Convention Center. Tickets start at $75 and are available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. Once again, tickets available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. We now return to the Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, what should Christians think of the new radical abortion laws like the ones passed in Illinois and New York? Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and if you'd like to join our discussion, the number to call, 312-660-2594, or you can do so online at facebook.com slash reachjulieroys, and Roy's is spelled R-O-Y-S, or on Twitter, our handle is at reachjulieroys. Also, I want to let you know that next week I have a very special guest joining me. His name is Eric Cochran, who's also known as the Pinterest whistleblower. Eric got fired for leaking documents showing that Pinterest censored a pro-life group. But Eric says all the big tech companies, Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter, are censoring conservative and Christian voices. Just this week, uh, perhaps emboldened by Eric, another whistleblower came forward who works at Google. And he exposed the same sort of thing 
that's happening, he says, at Google that uh, Eric says is happening at Pinterest. Eric first went public about two two weeks ago on Project Veritas and has been on Fox News. And I'm super excited to have him here on the Roy's Report. So you're not going to want to miss this show. Really fascinating discussion, I'm sure, uh, with Eric Cochran. Well, returning to our discussion on abortion and how Christians should think about the issue, again, joining me is pro-choice uh, advocate Livy Burke and Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. And Livy, let me, let me throw this back to you um, because I think you wanted to chime in a little bit when you're talking about, all right, we had talked about late-term abortions, um, and that's, yeah, I think we all feel, uh, I, it sounded like even you were feeling uncomfortable with late-term, am I right? Um, I actually had a question I just wanted to ask hypothetically really quick. Sure, yeah. Hypothetically speaking, let's say what you were saying was true, that the late-term abortions were not for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that wider access to, like, clinics would decrease that amount? Because the, most women do prefer to have them earlier? Well... Uh, according to the studies, that one of the issues is that women had trouble deciding about abortion and then had access problems. So, um, yes, I think that that could possibly be one of the issues. And it sounds like it is one of the issues. They have trouble getting access. So maybe they wanted to have the abortion earlier but couldn't. Because that is a very huge problem. Because with a lot of clinics closing... Oftentimes, women will have to travel really far distances, or maybe because of the price, mm-hmm. they have to wait to save up the money for it. Right. To get it but like, doesn't, you know. doesn't this all come down to, though, whether or not that unborn baby is a person worthy of rights? And you're saying if it's not fully developed, it doesn't have rights, and they're not fully developed in the first trimester, and that's when most of the abortions happen, Right. Can you say that one more time? You're saying that the real, the real issue, uh, well, I'm saying, I believe the real issue is whether or not that's a person, the, the fetus, mm-hmm. the, you know, at, at whatever stage of development, but let's say in the first trimester, whether or not it's a person, because you're saying, and I think it's true, I think Father Pravone would agree with this, most abortions do take place in the first trimester, um, whether or not that's a person or not. And you're saying you don't think it is a person, Right. Right. And, and because it's not developed, and what do you base that on? I mean, I guess you base it off of, like, what it's capable of, what it's, like, the develop, like... Yeah. The develop, yeah. So, okay, so then I, yeah. this is what I ask you. If someone is, say, a handicapped person and isn't capable of making decisions or say I get old and I'm senile and I'm not capable of making decisions. Do I cease becoming a person then? And and can you kill me? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the same thing. Father Pavone, do you think it's the same thing? Well, part of the thing that can help us in this discussion is to actually look uh, at that child in the first trimester. You know, we, um, you know, we look at the, the body parts that we have in our body right now. I mean, th- thousands of body systems and organs and whatnot are in place, in place, all there at eight weeks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, people are, are raising a ruckus across the country. Oh, you know, you're, you're banning abortion at eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. But do they look at the look at what we're talking about um, when when you've got all these bodily systems with the, the the heart clearly beating? I mean, we have you know just look at the the video of it. Uh, we have this Baby Chris project going on right now, babychris.org. We're tracing the development week by week. So I think that can help inform us. Added with another idea, I know that Livy, and by the way, Livy, I want to say you're a very good writer. I've read some of your blogs and everything. And, uh, and you know, and you and, and, and many of the pro-choice advocates talk about inclusion, and we talk about inclusion. Of course, our history is a history of fighting for inclusion, uh, the African Americans, the civil rights movement, uh, LGBT uh, these days, of course. And, and, you know, Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., is part of our team, and, and, and she and I are always saying to, to, to folks, you know, if this is about inclusion, too, all we're trying to do in the pro-life effort is to say, let's widen the circle of inclusion, widen the circle of personhood, not restrict it, and uh, continue advocating on all the issues of social justice, uh, but it just include, include the unborn. And, and, and I don't see where the, the problem with, with that is. In fact, I see that the contradiction is, you know, we want to include uh, you know, special uh, uh, provisions for, for the handicapped, and obviously, you know, racism is a terrible scourge, and we, we always want to include people. We want to increase the circle of diversity, but the ones that keep getting forgotten are these tiniest, youngest children in the, in the womb. Let's just include them, too. It's part of the same ethic, and, and, and it's part of the same dynamic. Well, and if we look at our, our civil rights history, the reason we were able to deny rights to African Americans was because we said they were three-fifths of a person. And now we recognize how horrific that is to say they're three-fifths of a person, but we denied personhood to African American people. Livy, are we not denying personhood to the unborn? Is this not a human rights issue that these babies in the womb have no protection, have no rights at all? I'm, I mean, I wouldn't really, I feel like that's just a bit of a stretch. And you're also, don't you feel like there's an issue with prioritizing that over the life of the woman who's already sort of trying to make a decision, Not only, oftentimes not only for herself, and it's not, I keep saying women, it's not just women, but not only for themselves, but oftentimes for their families, for them, just their well-being, I guess. Well, I think, I think all persons, I think all persons are worthy of equal rights, right? I mean, that's what our country, uh, although our history shows that we weren't real good at it for the first 150 years, but, but don't we all have equal access to rights? And, and when you bring that up, I mean, I have very good friends who have had abortions and the damage that did to them. I mean, I think this idea that somehow it's in the mother's best interest to kill her own progeny. And I know Father Pavone, you run an entire ministry with women who are post-abortive. So, well, I mean, yes, do you find that they feel it's a good thing that they did this? Well, see, what Livy, what Livy is saying is, is, of course, very true that obviously we, we, we don't ignore or pass over the difficulties uh, that, that, that moms and, and, and dads and families have, what, especially when the pregnancy was unplanned and unexpected. 
Um, but but the question is to weigh and balance that against actually taking a life. You know, if one could 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 demonstrate that, okay, I can take this life because of the difficulties I'm having. Well, we can't underestimate the difficulties of people raising toddlers or troublesome teenagers. Uh, you know, I mean, we would never say uh, that no matter how difficult the situation is, that they can kill that child. Of course, the damage abortion does is another whole thing. In other words, we're not unaware of or, or, or uncompassionate to women. We deal every day with those that have had abortions. And, uh, you know, we, you can get, I have in front of me one of these bibliographies. It's an entire book of detrimental effects of abortion. Just a, It's just a bibliography. It's not even the studies. It's just a listing of them, and it's 261 pages. Uh, plus, there's, there's other similar uh, books. I mean, if we're concerned about women's health, we have to ask the question, what does abortion do to women's health? And, and, and that's one of the reasons we're passing laws to, uh, to, to say, no, you can't get an abortion. Or in Illinois, now they did away with the law that provided a waiting period. Let the woman think carefully about her options and about what the dangers of this procedure might be. I mean, that's, that's out of care for these women because there, there are a lot of devastating effects that they suffer physically as well as uh, emotionally. Livy, do you want to respond to that? I definitely empathize with those women, of course. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be people who, in that sort of spectrum, who do find regret or remorse. Um, I've found in my research that it's fairly, that's not as common um, for there to be regret that women who seek abortions are usually quite sure of themselves. Really? Where, where did you find that? Because, um, I mean, I've studied it. I've actually written quite a bit of it at my website. Um, you can, if you just uh, put a search in there for abortion and, and even the regret of abortion or the myth of abortion. Um, I mean, there have been studies done by the Elliott Institute, for example, that found that as many as 64% had abortions because they were being pressured by somebody. And then the, the, the amount of suicide and emotional issues that happen afterwards, I mean, study after study seems to show that that, that kind of emotional trauma is pretty high. So, I mean, do you have studies that have shown something else? I'm, I'm looking at an article by Slate. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, found that women seeking abortions are at least as confident as women making choices about breast cancer treatments, antidepressant during pregnancy, invasive prenatal testing, findings directly challenged. So confident. Okay. Yes. But that doesn't really talk about afterwards. Um, We just have like a minute and a half left, but Father Pavone, you've dealt with an awful lot of women on this issue and probably seen studies. You're probably up on it more than I am. What have you found? Well, there are, of course, multiple studies, and you have to look at what, what the questions the studies are asking. One of the issues is the timeline. You know, a lot of the women who right now are silent no more uh, in talking about the devastation abortion brought to their lives were, in fact, at an earlier stage saying, hey, I'm glad I made this right decision for abortion. I feel great. And only as time goes on do they start realizing the 
the uh, the problems that arose from it, either when they tried to have another child or mm. or, or various mm. other problems arise. Uh, you know, it, it, people are different, obviously. Of course, many people feel very uh, much at peace and confident about their decision, but follow them over the long term, and and that's where we see a lot of the a lot of the damage becoming mm. evident. Well, our time has come to an end, but thank you so much, uh, both of you, Father Pavone and Livy Burke. I uh, appreciate you uh, being willing to engage on this really hot-button issue. I just want to go to Colossians 2.8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. I think this idea of personhood, that it doesn't belong to all people, I would say that's one of those hollow philosophies. That's my view. Again, thank you for joining me. Hope you have a great weekend, and God bless.